0: You know, it's a Friday, of course, on Political Rewind, and um, many times on a Friday I'll say, well, we've had another consequential week in politics. Uh, I don't think you could possibly overstate just how consequential this past week has been with the Herschel Walker story uh, demanding as much as commanding uh, the headlines for uh, the entire week. Um, but I'm awfully glad all of you are with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, it, we have a very special show for you today that I've really been looking forward to for a long time. Uh, and in just a minute, we're going to introduce our special guest more formally. He's John Pruitt. Um, many of you out there in North Georgia know John Pruitt as one of the most highly respected, most popular TV men in Georgia, over the years, and we'll introduce him more formally in just a couple of minutes, as I said. But before we uh, get to John and and a conversation about a new novel that he's written, I want to bring in my Friday partner on the show, Jim Galloway, former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, because just for a couple minutes, Jim, I think we need to kind of sum up where we stand at the end of this week with the uh, uh, Herschel Walker Story Walker held a very combative news conference yesterday, um, out not far from Wrightsville, his hometown. He uh, continued to say he was in this thing for the long haul. That his enemies basically were out to get him, and um, he he showed no signs in any way of backing down. He said this has energized him and made him more ready for the fight than ever. Jim
1: yeah and and we'll see uh, we'll see how that that plays that uh, approach plays out uh uh basically he, he called reporters to a 10 a.m press conference three hours away from atlanta and then at 10 a.m yeah. decided to decided that it would be at 1 p.m uh so yeah. let's let us let us say that his relations with the press are not good they're rather hostile uh it it's uh, uh he gave uh, it, it and it, it, at the outside he just simply gave his 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 routine uh a stump speech reading reading from it didn't address any of the the allegations about the, the abort, uh uh paying for for a woman's abortion only only when uh kind of uh reporters uh pinned him down afterwards uh, d- did he make those denials it's it, it it you know it's he's got he's got uh uh, Washington Republicans hanging with him, uh, but they have no other choice, really. I mean, if if they were to abandon him, they're 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 giving up that race, and to give up that race is to give up, uh, uh probably uh their best chance of winning back back the Senate. So so th- that's what this is all about, you know. Uh, you see people dithering here and there, Republicans, about whether to support him. Uh, I am kind of interested in the silence. Uh, that you've heard, you haven't. You know, you know Brian Kemp will address it when pressed. Uh, other Republicans will address it when, when it's when, when it's pressed. But you don't have any vociferous uh, defenders for Herschel, not not that I can tell, on the on the Georgia scene. Uh, remember, his in, in the primary, Gary Black, uh, the the state agricultural uh, commission, was was uh, was probably Herschel Walker's best opponent. And at, at and and in that primary race, he said if Herschel wins, he could not endorse him. Uh, Black, so far, so far as I can tell, is silent. I mean, he's he is keeping yeah. with uh, GOP discipline and and uh, saying nothing rather than uh, saying yeah. "I told you so."
0: Yeah, and actually, um, even Kemp has really uh, stayed as far removed from it as possible. And of course, that's been his approach to anything that doesn't have to do with his race, which is part of the reason he seems to be running such a successful campaign so far. One last thing before we move on, Um, I tweeted out this morning a link to an awfully good piece in the Washington Post, which looks in a very deep way at all of the concerns about Walker's personal life that were raised by any number of Republican leaders and Republican political operatives for up to two years before he actually got into the race. One of the Republican opposition uh, operatives, a woman named Liz Mayer, is actually quoted in this piece, and she says she had warned people a long time ago that abortion rumors would plague Walker as a candidate. But she says people thought they could keep it hidden. And here's the quote that Liz Mayer gives. Across the board, Republicans in the state knew about it and decided they didn't care. I don't know if it was a moment of collective insanity when a bunch of people all said, seems like a genius plan. So if you follow me on Twitter, at Niget B, uh, you can read that whole uh, piece. Um, I guess, Jim, the last thing to say before we move on is... If, in fact, people vote in tribes these days, um, this is as good a test of that theory as any, although certainly we know there are independent voters out there, suburban women perhaps, uh, who may be swayed by this. But uh, the base of the Republican Party, Jim, seems set to line up with him based on interviews the AJC and others have been doing. Quick comment uh, from you.
1: yeah, the one thing I would I would, I would would remind people of is that uh, Brian Kemp got, I think, 90,000 more votes than Herschel Walker in the primary. So there's yeah, a pool okay. of people who are not comfortable with him.
0: All right, well, thank you for that, Jim. And of course, we'll be following this story uh, as it continues to unfold on Political Rewind. But now I want to turn to something that, I, as I said before, really been looking forward to, a conversation with my former colleague and friend, John Pruitt. John Pruitt uh, what, has spent, what, about 46 years <laughs> in the news business, working at television news here in Georgia. John is the winner of 10 Emmy Awards. Uh, Jim, he has something in common with you. He was inducted into the Atlanta uh, 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 Press Club Hall of Fame, uh, as you were. But uh, John is also a member of the Georgia Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame. He's won more awards than we can even begin to count. He's a native of Georgia. John covered everything from the civil rights struggles in the 60s to uh, Jimmy Carter's election as governor and then as president. Uh, So he has more history. And if we wanted to talk politics, and Pruitt, if you weren't here today to talk about your new book, Tell It True, which uh, is a novelization of an important story you covered back when you were first getting started uh, you, you would be right at home in this conversation John you you re- retired from wsb TV anchoring what 2010 right so to what extent as you watch the politics of today unfold do you think to yourself hmm I sure would like to be have a, have a piece of this right now. <laughs>
2: Uh, part of me uh, does, you know, encourage me to get involved and, and to do more commentary. But another part of me says maybe it's best to move on and, and leave that to guys like Bill Niggett and Jim Galloway, uh, <laughs> because I'm not as I'm not frankly I'm not as deeply involved uh, as I was when I was working. And as you will soon will soon talk about the novel, I've been writing fiction. And I, I guess it may be dangerous to combine fact and fiction. So I'm I'm changing hats from fact to fiction uh, with the writing of this novel and perhaps doing less of the factual commentary, although I am tempted at times.
0: Yeah, I'll bet you are. John's novel is Tell It True. It is a story based on a infamous murder case that took place in, I think, July of 1964 when uh, an Army Reserve officer, um, named Lemuel Penn was traveling back from uh, from his reserve duty through Georgia. He was near Athens. He was ambushed, shot, and murdered. It became a major civil rights case. Um And John, first, before we move to the novelization of this, we should say that when this uh, began, this case began, you were just a young, I think, twenty two year old uh, photographer, cameraman for WSB TV and actually were involved in covering this case from the very beginning, right?
2: Well, I, my first week on the job was the first week of July 1964. That happened to be the, the week, the day of July 2nd, was the day the 1964 Civil Rights Act was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson. And that was my first week on the job. And to say I was a photographer or even a reporter would be grossly exaggerating my true circumstances. I was hired as a, as a newsroom <laughs> Flunky, more or less. I was the odd job guy. I had no journalistic experience at all. I did have a college degree, and I had read War and Peace, which impressed the news director. And I think that's why he hired me (laughs) at the princely sum of a dollar twenty-five an hour. But in those days, civil rights was embroiling the entire southeast. We had a very small news department. Every warm body had to be pressed into service, and. My first week on the job, I went to a segregationist rally at the Lakewood Stadium in South Atlanta, full of raving segregationists, so unhappy that the Civil Rights Act was law and swearing defiance. And at that rally, four young black protesters came in, and they were severely beaten. And miraculously, I was able to shoot the first news film of my life, thanks to my a senior reporter who was accompanying and helping me carry equipment. He gave me a camera and said, John, see what you can get. I was able to get a few shots, and that went coast to coast on the NBC Nightly News that very evening, and I felt I had found a job I could love. Uh, So to say I covered the Lemuel Penn case, a bit of a stretch. Uh, Colonel Penn was murdered shortly after the Civil Rights Act was passed, about eight or nine days later. And I was, of course, very aware of that case, and did spend some time in Danielsville at the trial of the Klansman, not covering the trial, but holding the phone booth, the only phone booth on the square (laughs) for our senior reporter who was actually covering the trial to come out and phone in the verdict. So that was was the sum total of my role in covering the Penn case. I want to add that when I began writing Tell It True, I... I didn't intend to write about the Lemuel Pen case or fictionalize it. I wanted to write about the 60s, 1964 specifically, and the racial conflicts that existed and, and all the manifestations of that, political, law enforcement, journalistic, civil rights, all of that. I needed an event that would provide a gravitational pull to bring in all of these characters I had created. And it struck me that the Lemuel Pen murder was the ideal vehicle for that. But I've heavily fictionalized that crime. Uh, True, it is based on that event. And much of the narrative and the plot revolves around that event. But I want to assure readers it is totally fictionalized. I do hope it will lead people to learn more about Lenny O'Penn and that horrible crime.
0: Um, uh, We'll talk in just a minute about the characters that you've created uh, around the actual crime um, and and done so much more with this book. But uh, Jim Galloway, uh, we talked briefly with John before the show started about the interesting way in which a, a journalist like Pruitt uh, and like you and me was able to turn from writing basic news stories, you know, the basic news lead um, and uh, the economy of writing a story for TV news, writing to pictures, To writing fiction, and Jim, I found that one of the most fascinating things about reading this really fascinating book that uh, uh, John has written, Jim. Uh, yeah, it,
1: uh, and, and 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 this is where I want to hear from John on this, okay? Uh, because you know I've you know I've thought about writing fiction, it it. it, it but after you know, uh, you get in the habit of, of 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 writing nothing but the direct quote and, and, and a few things that follows that. It does it doesn't work for me. But l- let me ask you this: you basically you, in in this book, tell it true, you are you're creating an alternate universe. Uh, you're exactly. taking the you're taking the events uh, leading up to the 1966 governor's race in Georgia, and and treating it and 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 telling uh, uh, telling uh, readers of another outcome. Where, how do you go about deciding where to depart from reality and what reality to include? Because because you you have a mix.
2: I I do. I think the the bottom line for. Any writer of historical fiction, uh, you're given the liberty through the, uh, you know, the, what fiction is. You can create, you can make stuff up, you can imbue characters with whatever whatever quirks or eccentricities you would like to give them, and you create circumstances where they operate and hopefully advance the plot. Uh, so it does liberate the writer to depart from fact, and perhaps the biggest departure from fact. In my novel is the creation of a governor's race in Georgia in 1964. Uh, the uh. governor's race did not occur in Georgia in 1964, but in all honesty, I needed a political aspect of the story, and I did not want to be held to the actual year of the governor's race. And Jim, you're correct; I create an alternative universe where everything is fiction, uh, but hopefully, at the end of the day, readers will say, "Well." it was authentic. I I do feel like I was there. I recognize the characters. I recognize the circumstances. I recognize the emotions that were were driving people in those days. And so I would hope that folks would forgive uh, the placement of that governor's race uh, in 1964, which actually occurred in 1966. But let me hasten to add the candidates in my governor's race really don't compare the candidate in 1966, and that's another reason. If I had done 1966, I would have had to really be a lot more careful about the liberties I could take. But creating a governor's race and a year when a governor's race did not take effect <laughs> to me more or less underlines the fact that oh well this is this is fiction. This is John's universe. It's well, sit back and yes, read it. boy. But,
0: but here's why this is important, um, and I want to make sure our readers get our listeners get this because. In fact, this book is far more than a story of the, the murder and the subsequent trial. Um, John, you also uh, talk extensively about how the civil rights uh, movement was um, uh, developing uh, kind of counter narratives, the, the traditional civil rights, nonviolent leaders. And you bring in the younger activists who want action quickly. They're not they call um, they call uh, their elders Uncle Toms. You bring that in. You talk about the uh, business leaders who want a more progressive Atlanta and are worried about the image of the state and the city uh, hurting business here. We don't want to be another Birmingham, essentially. So when you move the governor's race from 66 to 64, that's an important part of the theme of your book, which is Georgia, but particularly Atlanta, on the precipice of change becoming perhaps a more progressive place, removing itself from the old seg image and moving forward. And that's exactly what's happening in your governor's race between Roscoe Pike, the arch segregationist, and Harrison Parker, who views himself as a far more progressive uh, character, right? Yes, but Parker
2: cannot campaign that way. And as we all know, Jim and Bill, uh, you had to be a segregationist for much of this period, even be considered electable in Georgia. And anyone with progressive instincts or ideas who felt that the change was inevitable, and most thinking people knew change was inevitable, the question was how to achieve it and how to get to that point. But to be elected uh, is a very difficult proposition when you're facing the electorate that really wants a segregationist, at least an extreme conservative. And uh, so that's the dilemma Harrison-Parker faces, And he's aided by my representative of the uh, Atlanta business white power structure, Devereaux Inman. Does that sound like an Atlanta name? (laughs) 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 Who, Who does try to pull the strings. And as we all know, that really is the story of how Atlanta operated. The beginning, if you will, of the Atlanta way, which was not a thing back then in terms of calling it that. But the power structure, often behind the scenes, Working to ensure that political candidates and office holders hewed to the idea that Atlanta could escape the fate of Birmingham, could become the South's next great city, and economic benefits would flow, which is exactly what happened. But I needed the governor's right yep. in 1964 to make that point.
1: Yeah, it, it, yeah, <laughs> you you uh, 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 Devereaux Inman, uh I've heard I've I've seen some reviews of of your book John that that, that say this is a a stand in for uh, uh uh Robert Woodruff. Uh but I see a lot of Mills Lane in there too. Uh the the, the CNN honcho. show. Of course, you know, you're right about the the having to if you were a progressive in the 60s trying to get elected in the Democratic pro, uh, uh primary it was it was more uh, intonation I think Carl Sanders was the one who said I'm a segregationist but I'm not a damned fool no. uh uh Jimmy Jimmy Carter in the 1970 uh race for governor uh was I mean I I read the predicament that you had your 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 your, your progressive Democrat uh in the book and said that's that's he's not Jimmy Carter but that's his dilemma he, he he can't he can't say where he wants to take the state, uh, and and be elected at the same time.
2: Well, and there are parallels between Harrison Parker and Jimmy Carter, but Harrison Parker is not Jimmy Carter. Uh, but we all know that in that seventy race, which we covered, uh, Jimmy Carter went to great pains to try to make people think that he really was conservative. He he made some moves that were quite controversial. And a lot of people voted for Jimmy Carter thinking he basically was a segregationist or certainly would go very slow on on, uh, integration matters. And there were a lot of very stunned people when, in his inaugural address, Jimmy Carter said, I say to you, quite frankly, the time for racial discrimination is over.
0: John, um, by the way, Jim, I I know that you uh, just had a moment there. Mills Lane, of course, CNS Bank. Uh, uh, not CNN, (laughs) we don't want to get confused with Ted Turner here, but that's perfectly
2: (laughs) fine. Let me add quickly, quickly, Bill, let me add this one thing about Millsby Lane, Robert Woodruff. Yes, I fully agree. I think aspects of each of those characters would be attributed to my character, Devereux Inman, and many of my characters are composites. And I think one of the fun things about reading the book for folks who have some knowledge of Atlanta and Georgia history will be finding those composite characteristics that I've combined in some characters, like Deborah Inman.
0: Um so okay, John, I, I want to talk for a few minutes about the novel itself. And, and I then I want to expand and talk about you in in how you approached writing this book. Again, moving from journalism to um to fiction but here's one of the things that i found really interesting um in, in one of the characters in your book is ronald hill the vice president and general manager of uh of a station that seems to be an awful like lot like, like wsb uh, no, tv <laughs> <laughs> well WDX. in part be, wdx to Dick- in yeah And one of the reasons it seems fairly similar is that you describe the building that Ronald Hill uh, works in, which is an old antebellum-style plantation building with white columns. John, we who work there know that the former WSB headquarters used to be called White Columns and was, in fact, an antebellum building. (laughs) But here's why I bring this up. One of the fascinating things is that Ronald Hill is a man who himself has, um, he's, he's a businessman first and foremost. Um, he, he understands that there needs to be a separation between what he does and his newsroom, um, but he is well aware of the pressures that he faces um, in terms of being able to speak to the people who are not ready to accept integration in the state at the time, who do not support the civil rights movement that's unfolding around them, and yet at the same time be willing to cover all of those uh, events and changes that are going on in uh, the state around him. And one of the things I thought was fascinating about that is in a different way, it reminds us of what news organizations are dealing with today, how do you talk about conservative Republicans, the pro-Trump Republicans, and balance that against uh, the criticism of those uh, people? How do you find a way to represent uh, all of those different forces in contemporary politics today? And as I read your book, I thought, well, that's the same thing they were, that, that Robert, Ronald Hill was dealing with uh, back in the 1960s in the context of civil rights.
2: Well, was it uh, Faulkner said the past is never over? In fact, it's not even past. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think think the challenge today is much more difficult than it was in the 60s. I think, and I created the character of Ronald Hill uh, in the television station WDX to illustrate the media role in the whole process of moving Atlanta forward, uh, escaping the Birmingham image. And the media was... Very much a part of that in terms of bringing in black reporters and black anchors. That came a little later. Lo Jelks was the first black reporter. He came in 67. And that was a historic move. And it created a lot of turmoil and, and objections. Uh, my good friend, our good friend, Monica Pearson, will tell you about the, uh, the ordeal she had to go through when she became the first weekday uh, anchor. And Jocelyn Dorsey as well. So television stations, and, and certainly newspapers, really, in a sense, led the progressive drive. They were, they were complicit in the desire to move the city forward, to eliminate violence, or at least to suppress the violence, and to take a leading role. And the newspapers as well, I mean, think Ralph McGill, think Eugene Patterson, uh, they were setting the tone. And our city was so fortunate to have that journalistic voice and that sense of journalistic responsibility. So I did want to build that into my narrative. Uh, The media played a real part. And, of course, the ground troops, Bill Matthews and and Mindy, were out there covering the stories and, quote, telling it true, unquote, under very difficult circumstances. Because uh, to be out in the field in those days was was quite a risky proposition
0: um I, one other point about 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 ronald hill though at, at early in the book uh reverend elijah timmons who is the, the more traditional uh, nonviolent civil rights leader in the community comes to see ronald hill and he says to ronald hill you stop covering these radical black students who are stirring up so much trouble they're hurting us they're hurting the movement they're hurting the image of the city and, and ronald hill says to him basically Reverend, I'm sorry, it's news, we can't not cover it. So, in many ways, that's what I'm talking about when I say, you know, the balance that needed to go on then um, was, it reminds me of some of what we as journalists have dealt with starting when Trump became ascendant in 2015.
2: Yeah, the challenges never get easier, i found. <laughs> and uh, art imitates uh, life and vice versa. We uh, continue to struggle with those, uh, those challenges
1: uh hey uh, uh john I, I eventually it i i do want to get into some of the more, more fascinating just because we are a bunch of an uh, uh elderly statesman if if you will here i want to go I, I do want to get into the one thing that i like about what what you what you've written is you 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 kind of you you give you give a lot of process, uh, in here about uh, about how it was to commit journalism without a cell phone, uh, but but I do but I do want to I, I, I since since you've already opened up the topic I do want to uh, uh, tell readers that if you are interested if you know your Atlanta history if you know your Georgia history, uh, there are just so many delightful Easter eggs in here. Uh, you've already mentioned one this is about a, a, a television station WDX TV that's welcome to Dixie but but of course wSB's uh was the first station in Atlanta and WSB stands for welcome South brother so what? there's yeah. there, there's that uh I do have there's a quote in there and and, and I, I love how you steal you do steal from history, you know it's, it's. you've got a quote in here he says uh, uh, where you've got uh, uh, your, your uh, 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 mr. Pike the the conservative candidate for governor he's he's saying uh, saying what he he'd do to, to black protesters he says, why I think that they ought to put him in so far back in jail that they'd have to pump daylight to him. That's an old Governor Marvin Griffin line. That's from the 19, late nineteen late nineteen fifties. Uh, you've got. You know, uh, I, was uh, was Herm-
2: I was thinking it was Herman. I was thinking it was Herman Talbott, but you're probably right. Li- I would not question you on that one, Jim.
1: <laughs> uh, but but then you've got so so okay. So we're going to go to a break, right? Uh, if we're if we're going to go to a if we need to go to
0: a break, let's then, do that, then- Jim. You're. You're very intuitive, Galloway. Yes, we do. Let's get a break out of the way. I'm already late for that, but we have a lot more to talk about with John Pruitt, author and now writer of fiction. Tell it true. The novel by John Pruitt. We'll be right back.
1: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
0: We are talking with John Pruitt, the, uh, I think legendary is not too strong a word to use of John Pruitt. He was, uh, anchor at WSB-TV and at WXIA for a shorter period of time. Uh, he has now written a novel, Tell It True, which recounts, among other things, a, uh, a racist murder in 1964 and, uh, how that murder became a national story, how it launched the career of, uh, the young journalist who he writes about, Gil Matthews, but the book also talks about how Atlanta particularly, but the state, was trying to move out of its seg pass to become a more progressive uh, place to be. Jim Galloway joins me, and Jim, I know you wanted to jump right in. Yeah, yeah. Let's
1: let's go to the that topic where we were before we we left for the break. Uh, John, you you go into you, you go into some, just some fascinating detail about what a what a, a a TV reporter slash cameraman had to go through simply to simply to get his get his 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 film. We're not talking about we're not talking about digit digitized images. We're talking physical film back to his station processed and then chopped up into pieces for a story.
0: John, that's I want to, I wanted to hear that too, because like you, I started with film and uh, went through the whole kind of process. You talk just a little bit about that because it really is interesting.
2: Well, and I wanted to put process in because I think too often we forget how tough it used to be. Television being a, a relatively young arrival on the journalistic scene, Uh, I can vividly recall uh, duplicating the scene where Gil Matthews is loading up his gear to go into Grady Hospital for a news conference, Uh, a heavy Oricon camera on your shoulder pod, uh, an amplifier around your neck, a Fresolini battery pack, which must have weighed five pounds, around your left shoulder, uh, a light meter dangling precariously from your neck and swinging wildly when you swivel to get a shot, Uh, all of that, and you're hauling it in a tripod. Uh, One person was carrying all that gear. We had hand carts to do it. And in the field, of course, uh, you very often were operating by yourself without assistance, so everything was a one-man band. And when you shot the story, it was filmed. So you knew you were at least two hours away from getting it on the air. And if you needed to phone in a bulletin, well, where do you find a phone? I mean, if you can find a phone booth, great. If you're out in the country, you can knock on a door, and maybe someone would let you in to use their phone. But the, the fluidity of communication that we take for granted today was simply not there. And, of course, we didn't realize what the future would hold. But uh, looking back, it's absolutely incredible to me that we got anything on the air because it was, it was so difficult.
0: John, when well, you dumped the film into the bag, you had to get it into the machine to be processed. And then the editing yes. was a little bit different as well. You literally physically cut strips of film. Um, my recollection of doing it is putting little pieces of film on tape up on a wall, marking above yeah. and here's what this shot is. And then Bill, you would literally splice it together. Believe me, I had splice flakes on the air.
2: That was also a common yeah. problem.
0: <laughs> John, well, I, I we want you to talk well about. It. Yeah, uh, it, that is a wonderful part of this book. Getting a chance to see how things unfolded in terms of uh, uh, how, what we did to get stories on the air back in the day, compared to today, when you just go out in the field and you do a live shot and uh, you're done. Um, I want to talk about a very small Easter egg, but that just delighted me, John. Many of the names of the characters in this book are, of course, fictionalized versions of real people. But there's a name in here that is real, and I loved it. Who is the floor manager on the WDX-TV news? What's his name? Skip. <laughs> who, who is Skip, John? <laughs> this is my homage to Skip Poitier,
2: who uh, we all know was the cog in the wheel that made things happen at WSB. and You know, I... A lot of fictitious names. When it came to name the floor manager, there was only one name I could choose, and that would be Skip.
0: Well, and the reason it's it's worth mentioning is that for many years, Skip Poitier was a wonderful character in the newsroom. And I always used to say that the newscasts at Channel 2 would be even more interesting than they already were if we had Skip— in a little box in the upper left corner with a microphone commenting on everything that you and Monica were saying because he was so funny about talking about news and, and
2: perceptive and perceptive. Yes. He was a, he was a wonderful guy He's still around. And I need to, I need to sign a copy of the book for him. Yeah.
1: Hey John. Um, and, and I, I, I guess I, I, need the, uh, the John Pruitt, the nonfiction, uh, journalist here, here, uh, oh. The, the period that you're writing about 1964 you're right it's kind of the birth of 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 tv news on the local political scene because i mean i mean we've we all we experienced in, in the 1960 debates with with kennedy but this was you know tv was getting somewhat portable not not very but somewhat portable you had a whole group of politicians in georgia throughout the south everywhere actually who are trying to get used to it, to, 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 deal, to how they work with, with, with TV reporters and how they work to get their TV message out in, in you know the, the, the southern tradition was of the stump speech was this very especially in rural areas, was this very bombastic, very loud, very long address to, to crowds of supporters. That's how they got their message out. How did you find the, them, them tailing, tailoring themselves? Uh, when you were first in, in, in your first say ten years uh, on the streets of, of Atlanta,
2: well, they all tended to talk a little too long, and we were burning film. And if they didn't want to answer the <coughs> question, they could keep talking and filibuster. And you knew you were you know every foot of film was was costing the station money, and we were always uh, encouraged not to shoot a lot of film. But you know we all learned together, and and I am actually talking in the book about politicians realizing that they need to get their main point across initially, and then they don't have to worry about it if questions are asked. So they've made their main point, and very often they feel they've made the point that they know uh, the television reporters will, will use. Uh, there's a sequence where Roscoe Pike, the racist candidate for governor, is, is stopping uh, in a small Georgia town, and a network crew finds him. And he, uh, I, I like that chapter because he more or less turns it totally to his advantage, Uh, Because he's got a crowd of supporters behind him, and they're with him, and they're cheering him on. And he knows the things he is saying are going to make the network news that night because it's so outrageous to this reporter who's probably come from New York down to do this piece. Uh, So the candidates probably are a little more evolved than they would have been in 64 in my novel. Uh, But post-64, things really began to develop. I think 1970, Jim and Bill, was... Probably the first year television really had impact in terms of professional uh, advertisements, the Gerald Raskun era, I like to call it, where where skilled uh, consultants were crafting television messages. That wasn't happening in 64. If you saw a a politician on TV, a candidate, he was doing his in-studio, look at the cue card uh, message and moving on. But he got a lot glitzier
0: post-64. So, John, let's go back to the heart of the book, uh, please. Uh, your the victim uh, uh, in, in in your novel uh, is Jarvis Pendry. He is uh, murdered after stopping at a gas station. He's lost his way uh, in what you is Pickett County in the novel. He's looking to find a way to his uncle's house. He goes into a gas station that um, where the the uh, people are extraordinarily unfriendly. He leaves very quickly. He's followed and shot to death um, right as he's uh, about to cross over a bridge in Pickett County. Um, And one of the characters who we meet very quickly is Sheriff Lucas McSwain, who, as we first see him, is pretty typical of the kind of stereotypical southern sheriff, a little bit overweight, swaggering, not very friendly to uh, 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 blacks. He's he's, he's sort of a marginal uh, bigot. Uh, maybe more than marginal, you'll tell me that. But he has an interesting evolution throughout your book, and I'm interested in the fact that you decided to let him evolve.
2: You know, it's an extraordinary thing when you write fiction and create characters and put them in their own little cosmos. They will begin to take on actions that you could not have predicted. And this was the case with Lucas McSwain. The character, I was quite aware in introducing him that he's going to come across like a stereotypical rural Georgia sheriff. He has all of those earmarks. And yet there is an arc in the story that really evolved. Uh, I didn't really quite intend for that to happen. But Lucas McSwain and the widow of the murder victim, Evelyn Pembroke, who comes down to Georgia from their home in Baltimore to insert herself into the case— Really took me on this journey, and it's it's really kind of a mystical thing. But writers of fiction will tell you this does happen. Characters will take on a life of their own, and that was the case with Lucas, Lucas McSwain. And he may be my favorite character in this book. I think he uh, he provides something of a center for the evolution of thought that was going on in those days. And I think I don't want to spoil the plot here, but His change of thinking, I think, was also happening among a lot of white Southerners, thinking white Southerners, who realized that change is coming. How do we adapt to it? And how could you not look at the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution and possibly justify the treatment of African Americans in the South in those days? You could not. And so that was part of the evolution. And Lucas McSwain is part and partial of that if Lucas McSwain can change anyone can
0: change yeah you're right uh that we we, I am being a little cautious and I know Jim will be too we 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 don't want to spoil uh outcomes uh, in this book we we want your readers to discover them for themselves but I will say that one of the fascinating things about what happens to McSwain early on is he's he's if if at first we meet him and think he's another dumb rural sheriff, we quickly learn that's not true. Uh, McSwain is very hostile to the media, to to, uh, Gil Matthews and Mindy Williams, the AP reporter who come out to cover him at first. Um, And then state law enforcement, GBI, shows up. And McSwain very quickly calculates, wait a minute, times are changing. I can't bury this murder uh, under the rug the way I may have wanted to do it were the times not changing. So from very – I was very impressed with the fact that you gave us reason to understand his evolution from very yeah. early mm-hmm. in his trajectory. He's not a stupid man. He's had world experience.
2: He's served in World War II, <clears throat> fought with Patton in the, in the war. And uh, he has this fiefdom called Pickett County where people, you know, react to him in a very deferential way. That's the way it is with a lot of rural sheriffs. <laughs> they run the county, as you know. Uh so I'm glad you picked up on that. Yes, he is not an imperceptive man. He he can take advice and he can examine and, and adapt accordingly.
1: Jim. Okay. J- okay, John. John, on on this one, if you think I'm cutting too much into your plot, just just give me a wave, give me a high <laughs> sign, and and I'll I'll, I'll shut my <laughs> mouth. Uh, but one of the one of the more more. Uh, I mean, look if if you were if you were a uh, you know I was not a reporter in in the sixties but I was in the seventies and one of the one of the the best treats a reporter could have is a a a murder trial in an old Georgia courtroom. You know, it was it was just it was it was a, a fascinating bit of of, of theater, and it, we have a trial in here. We have two two men who are accused of of capital murder, and and there's there you cite a provision of georgia law in which a person accused of of capital murder can get up before a jury make a statement and not be cross-examined or questioned by not by his own attorney or by 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 the prosecutor is was was that real and if so when did that stop
2: the unsworn statement uh law yes it was real <sighs> It was absolutely real. Uh, a defendant in a cap of a murder trial in the state of Georgia could get up, say pretty much whatever he wished to do, which in most cases would deny the crime, and he could not be cross-examined. It would be a statement only. He would get up, read it, and sit down, and that would be the end of it. And yes, that was the law, and it was determined, surprisingly or not, to be patently unconstitutional. I don't think it survived. I don't think it survived much beyond 64. It was pretty quickly, uh, done away with one more, one more small step for uh, progress in Georgia.
0: I, it was a fascinating thing to realize. All right. We've, we're, we've got to get to the final break of the show more with Jim Galloway and John Pruitt in a moment. Jim Galloway and I are talking to the novelist, John uh, Pruitt, after virtually 50 years in the television news business as one of the finest reporters and anchors in Georgia. He's now turned to writing a novel, Tell It True, the story based on a true uh, race murder that took place in 1964 here. A quick comment, uh, John. I was really you know, I felt bad for your protagonist, Gil Matthews, who, when he has a quick break, goes to the varsity for a hot, a hot dog uh, as a Chicagoan. I'm sorry, John, but it's just not the same as a Chicago hot dog. <laughs> Anyhow, let's move on. I want to know, you are, have always been considered a model of journalistic integrity. It's one of the things about your reputation that has been sustained your entire career. Um, You're fair, straight down the middle. You report facts as you see them. Um, So what's it like to get turned loose like this, John? You talked about how McSwain evolved. You let he evolved in front of your eyes. Suddenly, the universe is yours to create. That must be a remarkable feeling and a bit scary, too.
2: Um, Bill, thank you. You're very gracious, and I appreciate those kind words. And yes, it is a bit scary. Uh, But I I simply have to tell you that after a a career of writing the facts and telling it true in a very factual way, to be liberated to the world of fiction, uh, but being held to also historical accuracy in terms of the times and the people and and the events, uh, was liberating and exciting and thrilling. And uh, by golly, I'm thinking about maybe trying it again.
0: (laughs) Oh, <laughs> good for
2: you. Maybe,
1: maybe no, no, commitment there. Yeah, it, 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 but 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 you're right. I mean, uh, uh, you draw art from reality, which then becomes art again. And and I'm 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 curious in, in in just in reading this book. You know, I there were a lot of confrontations, especially the interactions with 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 media and and the crowds, and the crowds that a a candidate can summon to deal with the media uh mm-hmm. that's that's yesterday's news that's 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 that is that is that is uh that is yesterday's press conference uh, with Herschel walker uh it it just seems to me that 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 you have you're drawing you're drawing from his you're drawing from from fact but but you're almost predicting the future
2: you know in in a way i'll go back to Faulkner. The past is not past. <laughs> it is very much with us today. And I was quite aware writing the novel, things were evolving as I was writing. The Ahmad Arbery murder took place as I was writing the, the, the book. Um, the Floyd murder in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, even the election controversy I have in my book was written prior to the presidential election uh, the last presidential election. So events were more or less keeping up with the book. Art was imitating life and vice versa.
1: Yeah, and actually actually you, you, the readers may want to take note here is is that the 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 the, the murder in, in, in John's book and the Lemuel Penn murder of, of nineteen sixty four the 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 parallels to what happened to Ahmad Arbery in in in, in twenty twenty uh, down in down in Brunswick, there it's it's actually quite incredible.
2: It is indeed one of my mentors in this process, the late Terry K, wonderful novelist, who spurred me to write and who I sent manuscripts to, and he would critique them, sometimes unmercifully, put <laughs> to my benefit. He was incredulous too that so much was going on that I was writing about. Uh, it was almost scary, in fact, that things were developing in real life that could be. Uh,
0: emulated in the book itself john um i i want to we've only got a few minutes left but but i don't want to uh ignore something that i think is really important about the book one of the people who you turned to to get input about the book was monica pearson um who you served sat side by side with for so many years at the anchor desk at channel two news um And apparently she gave you some pretty good ideas uh, for how the story was developing. But I also think it's really important to say that when you write about how the Civil Rights Movement evolved, how Georgia, how North Georgia evolved in terms of its understanding of race, um, you were right there at then Monica Kaufman's side as she came to Atlanta as the first African-American female anchor, and you were right next to her And we're given a lot of credit for helping her survive and end up thriving in the uh, media market here. Um, And I I don't want to let that go without uh, saying uh, that that's going to be a big part of your legacy. How do you reflect on that today?
2: Well, I I view it as a a great privilege to have been the guy who sat next to Monica when she arrived and went through um, a very difficult period of uh, critical view of reaction, but it was more, uh, my role was more of a bystander sitting in admiration of this young woman who was undaunted by all of this, who, despite everything that was going on, won over the viewers through the magnetism of her personality and charm, which came through the TV screen like a, like a laser and, um, you know, made dull white guys like me look kind of, If you will, she she dramatically changed things in this city. But the enduring thing that Monica did, which we all should sit back and recognize, was she defied every stereotype that so many people had. She was just a human being uh, that people could relate to. And the fact that she was African-American made, I, I, I told her this and I told audiences this, I think Monica Pearson did more for civil rights in this town than almost anyone else uh, because she reached people on a nightly basis and they embraced her and they embrace her still today. So it was my privilege to Monica and to work with Jocelyn Dorsey. who came in before Monica, but mm-hmm. Monica was the first weekday anchor six and 11 o'clock. And of course, Lo Jelks, He was the first black reporter on WSB television. He's about to be admitted into the Atlanta press club hall of fame. I might add, it was my privilege to work with Lo as well. So yeah, I was, uh, Not only an eyewitness to history, I was a participant in that history, and um, I am so gratified to be able to say that and to write about that. Fiction, though it may be, there's a lot of truth
0: in the novel. Well, and in fact, Jim, that's one of the reasons I brought it up. Although Monica didn't come in until the mid-'70s, the fact of the matter is the things that John writes in his novel about is starting to happen in the 60s were exactly what he went through with Monica Kaufman. Exactly, yes. Right right you had this is this is what us
1: we print journalists were really bothered by uh the advantage that TV journalists had you walked into their living room every day you were their face you 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 you, you were a face you were a human being and this is why you got so many of the darn tips that we didn't
0: you no, got right. <laughs> <that is> <laughs> <laughs> John Pruitt, I'm sorry, we're out of time. I, I wish we could talk for another hour. It's been so much fun, but thank I don't want to run out of time before I get to say your first novel, uh, now pop out uh, and available everywhere, Tell It True. Uh, and I really had a great time reading this book, John. I learned thank about you. the state and the city in new ways. So thank you for being here. By the way, we can tell people you're at the Carter Center Monday night? Monday night. Hope to see you across. Okay. Thank-
2: Oh, thank you yeah, for uh, a perceptive read and wonderful questions.
0: Thank you. Jim Galloway, you know I love being with you, too. That's it. We're completely out of time. Back again, of course, with a brand new show Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.